0: Good morning, we have a really cool program at our church that's called our homebound ministry. And like the name suggests, there's a number of our church members who they are no longer physically able to come to church. Typically it's a health reason, there's, there's some very specific uh, limitation that they have. And so because of that, we assign our pastors to homebound members. So these are members of our church, they can't come here, so we go there. And so pastors receive homebound members and they call their homebound members and then they visit regularly their homebound members. And about 10 years ago, I received a homebound member named Miss Singleton. And I, I got kind of the report. There's a pastor that assigns that to you. So I get the report. And I remember she, she was in a nursing home. And so I remember just going over there to go try and meet her. I check in at the front desk. Uh, they, they kind of point me the right direction because I knew what her room number was. I go back to her room, and she's got a roommate. So so it's got names kind of like this, and so I see her name, see her roommate's name, and so I walk in, I walk past the, the roommate, and I walk back to Miss Singleton, uh, who I'm meeting for the very first time, and. Uh, she happens to be asleep at that moment. And so I kind of walk in. And I was like, hi, Miss Singleton. You don't want to wake somebody up who's asleep. I mean, that's, that's a terrible, terrible thing, especially as an adult. And so I kind of sat there for a few minutes. I wrote out a note, but she never woke up. That whole time I, I visited her the first time. So I, I just left her note. Left it right there on the desk and went back to my office. The next month I did the same thing. I go to the nursing home, I show up, I, I walk, now I know kind of where it is, I sign in, I, I walk back around to her room, I walk past her roommate, and she's asleep, second time, she's asleep same, same way, and so I was like, huh. So I sat there for a few minutes, and she didn't wake up, and so when I got back to the church this time, I, I called the pastor who's over at Homebound Ministry, and I was like, hey, so um, a Homebound member that I've got, it, like, is she awake, is she... Cognizant, like, like is, can I have interaction? And he's like, yeah, I've, I've talked to her on the phone. I mean, I've visited with her. She's really awake and aware and it, you're just catching her at a bad time. We're like, huh, that's kind of weird. So month three, I go, exact same situation. Month four, I go, exact same situation. Now now that it's month four, I'm feeling a little bit more like, I mean, these are just bad odds. So like I'm going in there and I'm kind of like starting to pat, like kind of at the, the foot of her, her bed a little bit. Like, hey, Miss Singleton. Nothing, it's kind of shook her leg a little bit more. Hey, Miss Singleton, month five, never wakes up month four, month five, I go back no, now. Now I've kind of moved my way up next to her. I'm like, hey, Miss Singleton. I kind of gently kind of rub her shoulder. Hey there, how's it going? Nothing, nothing whatsoever. So month six. We deliver poinsettias to our homebound members from our pastor, Dr. Young. And so I get a poinsettia. I go in, I take the poinsettia to Miss Singleton. By now I know exactly where I'm going. I sign in, I walk right back there. I walk right over to her and say, hey, Miss Singleton, I- I've got this poinsettia from Dr. Young from Second Baptist Church. Merry Christmas. Now I'm kind of like really trying a little bit harder so the shakes have progressed where I'm like, you know, just, hey, Merry Christmas. I mean, I wasn't violent or anything. It was just like, a, like if someone was asleep and you were trying to wake them up. Now, something happened this time that had never happened before, and that is her roommate took note of what I was doing. And she started repeating what I was saying. She started saying, Miss Singleton, Miss Singleton, Miss Singleton. And I'm looking at her like, Yeah, Miss Singleton, that's what, that's what Miss Singleton, right. And then she got getting louder and like, Miss Singleton, Miss Singleton, Miss Singleton. And I'm like, okay, uh, I'm worried that someone's going to come in and like arrest me or something. I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm just trying to. And then she starts saying, Second Baptist Church, Miss Singleton, Second Baptist Church, Miss Singleton, Second Baptist Church, louder and louder. A nurse comes in. I'm trying to explain myself. Immediately pull out the pastor card. I'm a pastor. I just, let's get that. Okay, I'm here to visit Miss Singleton for Second Baptist Church. I'm delivering this poinsettia and I'm not really sure what her roommate's trying to say. Uh, I don't know if she's unhappy with me or what. And the nurse starts laughing, like just dying laughing. I'm like, okay, there's a joke going on and I am completely unaware. And she says, what she's trying to tell you is that she is Miss Singleton. I said, excuse me? She said, she's saying she's Ms. Singleton and she's from Second Baptist Church. I said, who's that? And the nurse said, she ain't Ms. Singleton. And so I picked up my poinsettia and I said, hi Ms. Singleton, I'm, I'm Kurt Taylor from Second Baptist Church. We've met a few times when I've been visiting your roommate. For six months, I mean literally six months straight, I was visiting someone who I eventually learned was kind of sort of in a coma. And, uh, and six months straight, I was trying to wake her up. I mean, borderline accosting this person, trying to be friendly, all because I was wrong, not, not by a massive amount. It's not like I was on the wrong hallway or in the wrong room. I was wrong by this much. Ms. Singleton was right here. Every time I visited, I walked right past her. Six months. Wrong by this much, but sometimes being wrong by even a little bit is the difference between being completely right and completely wrong. Today we're gonna to look at a really important passage in the church. We're gonna look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. This is a passage that, in terms of Christianity, if you want to understand what it's all about, this is a passage you have to get, you have to understand. It's got a lot of deep theology. It's got a lot of deep truth to it. It's one of the central, what we call Christology passages, meaning it helps us to understand much more about who Christ is. The big question that was going on at the church at Colossae, the big question that they were wrestling with, was prominent or preeminent? Which one was Jesus? You see, that church at the time, they had kind of developed this thing called syncretism. So what they had done is they had taken some different religions and cherry-picked their pieces that they liked. And so they'd say, okay, we like this part of this religion, and we like this part of this religion. And so they believed in Jesus. He was an important figure to them. They just weren't sure that he was preeminent. Like, he was prominent. Prominent means he, he, was, he was important, but he wasn't the most important. Like, he, he was kind of first among equals in their mind. And, Christ, and Paul is writing this section, talking about the importance of Christ in order to show that that is not possible. So let's look at Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 20. He says this, we're going to read the whole thing and then we're going to come back and dissect it bit by bit. Paul says he's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn Of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be, there's our word, preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So this is actually a poem, possibly a hymn. It could have been a creed that they recited in the early church, but you can't get it in English, but in Greek, it has this rhythm and this flow to it. So it's possibly something that they recited, or it's even possibly something that they sung. But with that, there's some of this verbiage that's a little bit tricky for us to kind of understand, because it was written in this poetic form. There's three different relationships that this passage helps unpack for us, all central to the person of Jesus That it talks about Jesus' relationship with God. It talks about Jesus' relationship with all of creation. And then it talks about Jesus' relationship with the church. That first verse, verse 15, it says, He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. That verse right there causes throughout church history lots of problems from basic misunderstanding of what it's trying to say. And what it's not trying to say. So that first part, he's the image of the invisible God. That word image in Greek is the word icon. It expresses two different ideas. One is a likeness of someone or something. And the other is a manifestation of someone or something. So probably those of us in the room and maybe those of us listening online, probably a big chunk of us, even today, have had a picture taken of ourselves or we've taken a picture of ourselves. Maybe even unbeknownst to you, when you went to the gas station or even walking on our campus, a security camera took a picture of you yourself. Now, in the first century, people didn't have 10,000 photos taken of them over the course of their lifetime. It was most likely, a vast, vast majority of people in the first century never had a single image that was not taken from a, a camera. Obviously, that didn't exist. But in terms of a portrait painted of their likeness, just didn't exist. It was very, very rare. And so when someone represented an icon or an image, it was this portrait of somebody else, meaning it was an exact representation of their likeness. If you were to see that portrait, if you were to see that image, that icon, it meant that you knew exactly what the person that it was made to represent looked like. So what Paul is saying is that Jesus is the image of God. He's the exact representation of God. Now, throughout church history, there's a few different controversies that, that bubble up around a misunderstanding of who Jesus is. That Gnosticism comes at the end of the first century. That you see some of that that starts emerging even in, in some of these letters. The Gnosticism was this kind of secret knowledge. That they, they tried to say, well, okay, you've got Jesus, but we have this additional secret knowledge that you by yourself don't know all of what's going on. We like, by human nature, secret knowledge. Like you want to feel like you know more than everybody else. And so there's something about that that drew people in. And Gnosticism tried to teach that Jesus was just a regular dude that then God came upon him. Arianism, which is a a heresy that came a few hundred years later in the fourth century, it picked up on the same idea. It was saying that, okay, Jesus was important, but Jesus actually was just this, this firstborn creation, meaning that he was the first of many of God's sons. It didn't equate him with Jesus. What's that second part of the phrase says? He's the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. That firstborn phrase can be difficult to understand in our context. Jehovah's Witnesses, what their heresy or or, or their misunderstanding of this text is what gets our distinction from Jehovah's Witnesses. The reason that they're not a part of the Christian body of Christ is because their misunderstanding of this text. That they say, well, no, Jesus wasn't actually God. He was the firstborn, they actually equate him to being an angel. He was just the firstborn, the first angel, so he was the most important, but he wasn't God. What Paul is saying here is the exact opposite of that. That what it means for Christ to be the image of God is it's saying that the nature and being of God are perfectly revealed in Jesus. Look at a couple other texts. You don't have to turn there because I'm going to read them. Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Says, talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, no one has ever seen God, the only son, himself God, the one who is in the bosom of the father. He has made him known. It's saying that before Jesus we hadn't seen God, we never understood his likeness. But in Jesus, he has made himself known. That that phrase, made him known, uh, is where we get the word exegesis from. Exegesis is to draw out knowledge and understanding, to draw out truth. That Jesus is the exegesis of God, that he is the truth of God revealed to mankind. That word firstborn in Greek can mean two different things. It can be either first in precedence, Or first in supremacy and rank. What Paul is saying when he's saying that Jesus is the firstborn is not saying that he was born first in the way that we might think that represents. He was talking about supremacy. In the Old Testament, God talks about Israel as the firstborn over all the nations. That doesn't mean that Israel was the first nation. We know that they weren't. But God chose to make Israel the most important. He had this special covenant with them. In the Old Testament, it talks about King David being the firstborn. We know that he wasn't literally the firstborn. He was actually the youngest of his brothers. But he was the firstborn in terms of importance. That's the exact same thing that it's talking about when Paul says that Jesus is the firstborn. He is the most important, the most supreme. Look in verse 16. It says, For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. That Jesus is supreme over all of creation. That creation, he is preexistent to creation. That the Jesus existed before, he was not created by God. John 1, 1 says, in the beginning was the word, talking about Jesus, and the word was with God and the word was God, that Jesus exists before creation and now it gets into the relationship that is really complicated for us to comprehend in a very finite minds, finite manner, trying to comprehend an infinite God. But it says that all of creation, that God the Father creates through the Son, that Jesus is somehow this part of creation, that he's the mechanism which through God creates the world. And not only that, but all things are held together by him. That Jesus is holding things together. That all things were created for him. That includes you and I. That life on this earth is created by Jesus, created for Jesus, and held together by and I think from the perspective of Paul, as he's writing this letter to the church at Colossae, he's trying to encourage them in their life. Throughout this letter, you see him recurrently go back to praise, that you need to give praise and thanksgiving, praise and thanksgiving to God. Why then should they be giving praise and thanksgiving to God? That whatever circumstance that they're going through in their life, whatever circumstance you or I are going through in our life, That when we get the proper perspective with God of how huge he is, how amazing he is, how awesome he is, it allows us to look at whatever situation we're in and we can push back against the different trials and temptations and difficulties that we have with praise. That when we start praising God in our life, it does a few different things. Now I, I call it pushing back with praise. Two different things that happens when in our heart and our life we push back on our circumstance with praise. To praise Christ is to gain new perspective in the midst of tension. That whatever thing that you're going through or I'm going through, that in that moment when we can really center our heart and life and start praising God, what does it do? It starts helping us recognize that our problem that feels gigantic and feels overwhelming that in comparison to the awesomeness of God isn't nearly as big as maybe we thought it was. And so first we praise God in order to have a a better perspective. But then also we praise because it points the way to spiritual health because it directs the Christian's attention to the goodness and power of God. If I believe in Christ's supremacy, it also means that I trust in his sufficiency. That by being supreme over all of creation, that he's holding everything together, it means that Christ is sufficient in me. Now the problem oftentimes is it doesn't feel that way. Think about different times in life where it feels like you're barely holding your life together. Like it feels like Things are falling apart at the seams. And the natural mentality that we have is, well, what if? That you have this situation, this anxiety that you're, you're wondering what's going to happen. My wife, uh, three years ago, uh, she started having kind of fuzzy lines in her vision. And so she started having these fuzzy lines. And we got a friend of the church who used to be an optometrist. So we call her and say, hey, she's got some funny lines in her vision. She says, okay, you need to like, go to a doctor right now and like just wait outside their office in the morning and the moment they open you need to go in and say hey i see wavy lines and so that's exactly what she did like at, before that we we're like it's probably not that big a deal it's probably like a contact or something and then she kind of gave a little bit more context of hey so maybe that's a big deal so sh- she shows up to the doctor's office she goes in doctor looks at it and says okay you immediately need to go to a retina specialist and so all of a sudden i was like hey this is maybe a little bit more serious than we thought it was and so she goes to a retina specialist i go with her and the retina specialist says, okay, behind your eye, you've got a blood vessel that has cracked. And so it's bleeding out. It's, it's similar to what happens in elderly people when they get macular degeneration. Except my wife at the time was, I guess you were 34. Uh, she's 36 now, so somewhere in that, that range, about to be 37. And so it, it was like, a, well, that's kind of weird. That's really kind of odd. And so they said, so here's what's going to happen. Like today, like right now, in a few minutes, we're gonna take a shot. We're gonna put it into the back of your eyeball. It's gonna first, the first shot's gonna numb your eye. Then the second shot's gonna go in and it's gonna stop the bleeding. It was like, okay. That, as the person not getting the shot, it was like, oh, oh, I mean, I might go throw up here for a second, but then I'll, I'll be right back. And uh, okay, um, what happens next? And they said, well, then most likely it stops. It's just a weird kind of fluke thing that happened. And then you just go on about your merry way. And so she gets a shot. Uh, I was holding her hand like, baby, you can do this. You can do this. And I was just kind of looking away like, oh, gosh, please. Please don't. You could, you could actually, it, it was kind of like if you put a needle on a, on a water balloon, you know, that tension that happens. Like that's actually what happens in your eye when you get a shot. So if you're squeamish, yeah, I was squeamish. And, uh, and so we go home and she goes back for a checkup not long later. And it starts coming back. And so she has to get a shot again. And then it starts coming back. And then it starts showing up in the other eye. And so for the last three years, we continually go back and she gets shots, And it's kind of slowed down a little bit. But as you're going back, and I was going with her to a lot of these conversations with the doctor, you say, okay, so obviously it's not stopping the way that we were hoping or thinking it was going to. And so what happens if this keeps on going? Like what happens if it keeps breaking in the back? She keeps having blood vessels. And so, right now, like if you think of your field of vision like a piece of paper, that that's perfect field of vision, that, that slowly what's happening is it's like if you just take pinpricks and start popping holes in that piece of paper, that, that she's just slowly losing field of vision in certain spots. And so, the eventual outcome is if that doesn't stop, if for whatever reason it just keeps on happening. I mean, the doctor was, was pretty blunt. He said, well, worst case scenario is she goes blind. We don't know when. We don't know timing, but but that's the direction that it's headed. But hopefully we can slow it down, or hopefully even one step further, we can stop it completely. And so we had just come on the heels of losing our daughter, and now you're, you're just punched in the face with, hey, there's this thing that no one really understands. And they definitely don't understand why you, a 30-something-year-old, has got it and is struggling with it. But there's a chance that you go blind, or there's a chance that nothing bad happens whatsoever. And it could be anywhere in between. And so in situations like that in life, here's where our mind naturally goes. Our mind naturally goes to what if. Like you live in this unknown place of what if, and then it's worst case scenario. What if I go blind? And then if I go blind, then it leads to all those, the what ifs that's a result of it. And then how am I going to not be able to drive, and what's going to happen with our kids when they need to go different places? And, and I, I want to be able to watch my, my child's wedding, and, and I won't be able to see my grandkids, and I won't be able And naturally, you go to the extreme of what if. And so during that season, this is really something my wife came up with, not me, but she would start saying, okay, I'm instead of going to focus on the what if, I'm going to focus on the even if. That even if. The worst case scenario happens, I'm going to trust in God because Jesus is preeminent. You think of any situation in your life right now, and the natural tendency is to focus on the what if. The natural tendency is to say, well, this is bad, but what if it gets worse? And what if this happens? And what if that happens? And then it can become just so constricting on us that it paralyzes life. But instead, the way to walk in freedom... Is with even if. It's to say, not because I'm bigger than my situation, not because I'm better than it, not because I can do it alone, but because of exactly what Paul is talking about in Colossians 1, 15 through 20. It says Jesus is supreme. He is holding this world together. He is bigger than any problem I currently face, any problem I have ever faced, any problem I ever will face. And so even if life starts falling apart, Jesus is still supreme. Look in verse 19 and 20. It says, For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Reconciliation means this, It means to change completely. So the means of change that happens for creation, for you and I, was Jesus. That by him comes the reconciliation. What's the goal? That he reconciles us where? To himself. What's the basis? The cross. That it was through Jesus' death on the cross that reconciliation was accomplished. What's the object? What's he trying to reconcile? All things that he's trying to reconcile us, his creation, humanity, but he's also trying to reconcile his entire creation. That's that's this picture of the redemptive story, the narrative that happens throughout scripture, that there will come a new heaven and a new earth, that what starts that, what puts it into play, is Jesus' death and resurrection on the cross. During World War II, there was a fascinating story by a guy named Hiro Onado, He was a Japanese soldier and in late 1944, when he was 22 years old, he was in the Philippines. It was a very remote island named Lubang. And here's exactly what his commander told him. He said, hold the area, harass the allied forces and under no circumstances surrender. So most of his squad gets wiped out. It's just him and four other guys. They retreat up into the mountains of this remote Philippine island. What he doesn't know is that less than a year later, August of 1945, the war ends. Peace is declared. It is over. Nobody tells him. So a few years later, he's still up in the mountains in the Philippines. Slowly, the other guys that were with him, they either die or they go turn themselves in. But he's like, no, I was told to never surrender, I was told to stay up here. And so he he was continually fighting a war. He he was randomly attacking farmers and randomly going, attacking people. They tried to explain to him, like they, they flew planes over in the weeks after the war ended and the months after the war ended, even in the years after the war ended. They dropped leaflets. He was like, no, this is just propaganda. This is just a bunch of lies. He stayed up there. They, they got recordings from family members for some of the soldiers. They tried to drop those up there. They're like, nope, it's just a lie. We're staying up here. 30 years. 30 years. He stays up in the mountains. Most of the time completely by himself. Until a Japanese student who was going backpacking, he had heard kind of the legend, the rumor of this story. He goes backpacking up there. He finds him. He says, hey, man, the war is over. Let me explain it to you. He still didn't believe. He said, I'll only come down if you go find my commanding officer. And so they fly in the commanding officer from halfway around the world. And they explain to him, hey, man, the the war's over. Like 30 years ago. I mean, can you imagine 30 years of fighting a battle over and over and over again every single day when the war itself is finished? Here's the truth with you and I that the war over sin and darkness is finished. Jesus conquered it all. Jesus is preeminent. Jesus has accomplished reconciliation. You and I sometimes are fighting this battle over and over and over and over again. And what Paul is declaring is, listen, it is finished. The war is over. In Colossians chapter 1, verse 13, it says, for he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness. Here's the question then for you and I today. It's the same question for the church in Colossae in the first century. Prominence or preeminence? Is Jesus prominent in my life or is he preeminent in my life? There's been lots of people that have made Jesus prominent. I mean, you could argue the Jehovah's Witnesses have Jesus prominent. He's an important figure. And yet, even though they're close, they're completely and utterly wrong. You read through the New Testament, Jesus does not give us the opportunity to just make him a prominent figure. He only has one place he can be, and that is preeminent. That in your life, in my life, that Jesus either it's all or it's nothing. He's not squabbling over the leftovers of my life and your life. He's saying, no, you want me to come in? I must be preeminent. Uh, Paul echoes this. You look in Colossians chapter 3, when he's explaining to us how to live, he says, and whatever you do, in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Everything. Everything. Everything in my life, Jesus, must be preeminent. Not just prominent, but preeminent. I think in the American church, the modern church, here's what happens sometimes. is We fall in love with this idea of Jesus. Like, man, he's got great teaching. And I like, I like going to church. And I like the, the atmosphere. And I like certain pieces of it. And, and we can oftentimes fall into the same trap that the first century church did that we like to cherry-pick certain pieces. And we say, okay, well, I'm going to live a very culturally normal life that looks just like everybody else, but I'm going to cherry-pick certain morals and principles that I like from the Bible, and that's going to kind of be my package. And and here's the, the honest truth, is if we miss out on the fundamental heart behind the New Testament... We can cherry pick some of those things and make Jesus prominent and completely miss out on Jesus. That Jesus leaves no room for that. Jesus must be preeminent in your life and in my life. And when that happens, it changes everything. Look at the very last verse in Colossians chapter 4, verse 18. Paul is writing and he says, I, Paul... Write this greeting with my own hand, remember my chains, grace be with you. Here's the thing, Paul didn't physically write most of this letter or any other letter, he dictated it. So there was a scribe, there was somebody else that was sitting right there and Paul's explaining exactly what they should write down and so they're writing down, writing down, writing down and then somewhere towards the end, for sure, at least this verse, maybe a little bit above that. Paul says, No, 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 bring it over here. What would often happen in the first century is whoever was dictating to the scribe, they would write in their own hand that closing greeting so that everybody would know it'd be like putting their seal or their signature on it. And so Paul says, No, 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 bring it over here. Let me write this last bit. And what does he choose to write? He says, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. And there's only one or two reasons that he could write that in there. Possibly he wrote that in there as a, hey, man, you think you got it bad? I got it way worse, all right? Sometimes we like to one-up people. They're like, oh, man, my arm hurts. Oh, yeah, your arm hurts? Yeah, look at my injury. It's so much worse than your injury. Let me explain it to you. Like that's just this natural human tendency. Maybe, so maybe he was just saying, oh, hey, my life is so bad. Remember me. Remember how awful I got it. But that doesn't fit with the rest of the letter whatsoever. Why then would he write, remember my chains? We know from other letters, letter of Philemon, that Paul says, hey, I long to visit you, I want to visit you. But guess what? We know from this letter that he's never been to this church. He's never seen the Colossians. And he never makes it either. That's what Paul wanted to do. Paul in his mind is like, I'm going to come visit you once I get out of jail. But that's not what happened. He ends up losing his life as a martyr not long after he writes this letter. So why then does he write, remember my chains? I think it's a declaration of what he's trying to get the first century church to recognize. He's saying, look, you need to make Christ preeminent in your life. Why? Because you were created for him. By him and through him, he wants to do amazing, amazing things in your life. This whole sermon series has been about what? God's will for our life. What is God's will for my life? Scripture lays it out clearly. It's to live for Jesus. It's to advance the gospel that when, the, when I get my life lined up with God, that The will that God has for me is for me to every day advance the kingdom of God. And here's the great part. What Paul is saying about his chains is that there's nothing on this earth that can prevent the will of God. You declaring the gospel and living out the gospel, there's nothing. There's no circumstance in your life. There's no trouble that you were going through that Paul is declaring for all mankind. I will continue to preach the gospel. I will preach it when I'm free. I will preach it in chains. I will preach it in my life. I will preach it in my death. That the glory of God will be revealed no matter what. And this earth can't stop it. And that truth was true for Paul. And that truth is true for me and it's true for you. That God's will for your life is to do amazing things, not for you, not for me, but for him. And when my life is aligned with him, then I can know that his will being done makes my life so much more full and so much more complete. Instead of being focused on the what ifs of my life. What if this happens? What if this happens? What if uh, I can stand back and say, no, 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 even if. Even if I'm chained, even if I'm hamstrung, even if this happens, even if that happens, no matter what, Jesus is preeminent in all of creation, in all the church, and in all my life.